For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so last week we started in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, taking a look at the origin of all physical matter in the universe. And that's a very broad subject matter. All right, it's pretty hard to wrap your mind around. Even if you had the most powerful microscope and the most powerful telescope in existence, you still wouldn't be able to observe the wonder of all that God has made. And so what I wanted to do is I just wanted to show you a little two-minute video that tries to cover the whole thing, okay? And this video starts, it starts 10 to the 26 meters away from here, okay? That's what, like 50 billion light years? And it zooms all the way in, down to the surface of Earth, showing everything along the way. And, and okay, this is from a, um, okay, this is from a IMAX movie called Cosmic Voyage. Anybody seen this? Narrated by Morgan Freeman originally. But it's in that we, are, so we don't have time for the whole thing, so this is just music and sped up. <laughs> it starts out at 10 to the 26 meters away, and it just, it, it shows circles that are increasingly smaller and smaller as it zooms closer and closer into Earth. It ends up zooming right into a water droplet on the streets of Venice. And then it goes into the droplet, into a, a small um, organism, living organism floating in there, and, and zooms down into the cell, down into DNA, down out to the atomic level, okay? So we're going from 10 to the 26 meters away down to 10 to the negative 18th meters away from our focal point here, all right?
Pretty cool, huh? Quarks. <laughs> What's in a quark? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is it string theory? Is that where we go from there? All right, well. What have we seen so far in Genesis chapter 1 as we've studied this subject? Well, we've seen that modern physics agrees that our universe had a starting point for both space and time. Remember, we saw it's not just that physical matter had a starting point, but time itself had a beginning. And modern physics even agrees with that. And yet, they can only trace natural causes back so far, and they can't tell what happened before that, before the so-called Big Bang. But Genesis says that in the beginning, there was a supernatural being, God. He's not natural, he's not of the created order, but he's supernatural, he's above and outside of the created order. And that he's the one who set both time and space in motion. We also saw key differences between the biblical creation account and other man-made worldviews. We saw violence, sexualized, a host of gods battling to the death and then making the world, the created order, out of dismembered deities. That's not what Scripture shows at all. Scripture teaches there's one God. He's separate from His creation. And that He creates through His Word. He declares things into existence. He tells things to exist. There's a, there's a systematic injection of information, language, that causes things to be. We also saw that, and I lamented this fact, that many people in our culture think that believing in Scripture and in the Bible and in God requires accepting the premise that the earth is only 6,000 years old. You have to reject science in order to believe in God. But what we saw last week is the Hebrew word for day can be used to indicate a period of time that's a lot longer than a 24-hour period. And we saw indications right within the creation account that may be being used that way. And we said we can be totally faithful to interpret Genesis 1 as a real historical account while also allowing for a very old earth. And I think it's helpful to, to, when we talk about the subject of origins to plot things out on a continuum between natural processes and supernatural intervention. Okay, so this is, this is how things came to be the way they are today. You know, on the one side, you, might, you have supernatural intervention. This is where God is, is performing miracles every step along the way to create it all. And they would argue evolution doesn't account at all for life. And we talked about this position last week. And I told you problems that I saw with that. Now, on the other hand, you've got natural processes. And this, this worldview would say that evolution completely accounts for life. That evolution alone is enough to take us from nothing up to the diversity and complexity of species that we see today. You know, obviously, an atheist would find themselves way down, and that's the only game in town, right? They don't believe in the supernatural. So as, as Richard Dawkins said, Charles Darwin finally made it intellectually acceptable to be an atheist. And so atheists would be all down at the far end of the spectrum. There's a lot of Christians, actually, that would put themselves way down on the end of this. They might allow for God starting things and also perhaps um, giving a soul to human, the first humans. But for the most part, they would be way down on the end of natural processes. But, you know... Um, 
The thought that natural processes, that evolution can completely account for life, I want to say I believe in evolution, but I've got problems with this thesis right here. I think we need something else too beyond that. And what I want to talk about tonight is I want to talk about five reasons why I think evolution can't completely account for life. These are probably the top five reasons that come to mind for me when I consider this subject, and I wanted just to talk about these with you guys and see what you think as well. All right, first of all, I, want, I ask myself this question. Okay, if evolution accounts for everything that is, how did the universe begin? And, and we talked about this last week, but at the same time, we can't forget about this because this is a pretty big objection. We can't just take for granted the existence of stuff and start from there. Because, you know, the, begin, the universe beginning, we argued last week that the universe began to exist. And we, we argued that if something begins to exist, it has a cause. And that cause has to be bigger than the thing that it causes to exist. And we argued that cause is God. And so how did the universe begin? That's a pretty big objection in my mind to the naturalistic account. Here's another question. Not just how did the universe begin, but how did it begin so finely tuned for life? What do I mean by that? Well, we talked about this just a couple of months ago. And so I'm not going to go real in-depth on this one either, because that would be a little redundant. And yet I can't resist talking about this here, because this is a relatively recent development, the research in this area, and it is super persuasive. Before I begin to explain this, I just want you to imagine landing on Mars, and you land on Mars, and you find a greenhouse on Mars. It's all lit up in there. You see, like, little kids running around and playing. There's a family just sitting, looking on to their family, and you're like, what? Is, there's plants in there. They're just, they're just having dinner. And you're like, what is going on here? You, you, you come around to the side of it, and you see a huge control panel, and it's got little dials for temperature inside the greenhouse, oxygen levels inside the greenhouse, gravity levels inside the greenhouse, natural light levels in your greenhouse, soil pH inside the greenhouse. Each one of these is very precisely set to allow for life in that biosphere. And what scientists are finding more and more is that when we come to our universe, what we have is that but on a much larger level and at a much greater level of precision than you'd find in that little greenhouse. You know, you could survive, you know, you might have a 40, 50 degree temperature range where you could theoretically survive. What scientists are finding is that, well, let me, I'll just let Stephen Hawking explain it. He's smart. <laughs> in his physics bestseller, A Brief History of Time, which he called the best-selling physics book that was never read. <laughs> he says, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers, like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. He says, we cannot at the moment at least predict the values of these numbers from theory. We have to find them by observation. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. For example, if the electric charge of the electron had been only slightly different, stars either would have been unable to burn hydrogen and helium, or they would not have exploded. 
it seems clear that there are relatively few ranges of values for the numbers that would allow the development of any form of intelligent life. Most sets of values get, would give rise to universes that, although they might be very beautiful, would contain no one able to wonder at that beauty. Roger Penrose talks about these, some of these different constants, and, you know, like Martin Rees has a book called Just Six Numbers, and he, the book, the whole book explores just six of those, but there's a lot more than six. There's somewhere upwards of uh, 30 constants at this point. And the range of fine-tuning for these numbers, it's not like, you know, plus or minus 10% either direction, and we would have been fine. No, the, the levels of fine-tuning are, if this were off by... 1 in 10 to the 60th, 1 in 10 to the 80th, life could not exist. That's how finely tuned these dials are. Roger Penrose talks about one that is the most finely tuned, and this one has to be accurate to one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. How big is that? How big was the original phase volume the Creator had to aim for? This guy is an atheist. This guy is distinguished Oxford prof, all right? He's, I'm not sure what he means by the Creator. But he says, the Creator's name must have been precise to an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd. One could not possibly write that number down in, the or, in full in the ordinary denary notation. That's like what Oxford people say when they mean decimal notation. <laughs> because it would be one followed by 10 to the 123 successive zeros. Even if we were to write a zero on each separate proton and on each separate neutron in the entire universe. Okay, imagine you can get every atom lined up and then split them out into their particles, protons, neutrons, and every one you're like zero, 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 zero. And then just throw in all the other particles in the universe as well for good measure we would fall far short of writing down the figure needed. That's the odds of picking one particle at random out of the entire, all the physical matter in the universe, and that being just the right one. That's what we're talking about here. This is the level of fine-tuning. This is the precision with which our world is created. And you can't, you can't attribute this to evolution. He says, this is the precision needed to set the universe on its course. You can't attribute either of the first two of these to evolution. The fine-tuning of the universe or the beginning of the universe, because this takes place before evolution can happen. For evolution, you have to have life, and you have to have um, really sustaining and reproducing organisms that are fighting one another for resources. And universes don't do that. Universes don't give birth to universes and fight other universes for resources. This is what we have. What about this question? How did living organisms come from non-living matter? This is the question of abiogenesis. That's the big fancy term for that. Abiogenesis. How did biogenesis from non-life? Okay, that's really what it is. And, and again, this is another question that you can't just play the evolution card and say, well, evolution must have done it. Because in order to have evolution, you have to have living organisms already in place. The question is, how do we jump from non-living matter 
to a living organism. You can't attribute that to evolution. And I, I, I can't see any naturalistic process that could account for that. What about this question? Why are there so many gaps in the fossil record? Have you thought about that? Have you guys studied this much? Gaps in the fossil record. And I've got a warning here. I'm going to offer some criticism of Darwin, which I know that we're not supposed to do. I really like this quote from uh, J.Y. Chen, a Chinese paleontologist. He says, in China, we can criticize Darwin, but not the government. <laughs> in America, you can criticize the government, but not Darwin. <laughs> Um, okay, let's hear Darwin on this. <laughs> Darwin says, and this is in his book, The Origin of Species, he says, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth must be truly enormous. Right, so his, his theory is you have a living organism and then over tens of millions of years, small changes happen and then the small changes lead up to big changes and before you know it, this species has branched into this, maybe this species and that species and that species. And he says, there must be all these intermediate varieties along the way down the tree of life. And you think of a tree of life and it's, we've kind of got the, um, the species out at the end, but there should be intermediate varieties along the way. He says, but if that's the case, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links. Where are all the intermediate species? Why all the gaps in the fossil record? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. He says it definitely does not reveal that. And this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Okay, so he's writing in 1859 He's assuming, I'm sure they'll find these intermediate species. The problem is, we haven't. We haven't found these intermediate species that Darwin thought would be there. Doug Grutheis says this, he says, Darwin's tree of life has been falsified by the fossil record. While it seems true that single-celled organisms occupy the earliest strata of Earth history, many organisms appear in great numbers with no traceable ancestors. This is particularly true for what is known as the Cambrian explosion. Perhaps you guys have heard of this in some of your coursework. What is the Cambrian explosion? He says, during this period, dated between 500 and 600 million years ago, the fossil record shows that the major animal groups appeared abruptly and completely formed in a, quote, geological instant, they say. But he says, according to Darwin... These animal groups, or phyla, should increase in number gradually over time. Instead, boom, they're there. Thus, in the Cambrian explosion, the major animal phyla are already present, fully formed, without the long branching tree history required by Darwin's theory. Hmm. You might be like, aha, but what about punctuated equilibrium? I heard they have an explanation for this. It's called punctuated equilibrium. And, and that explains this phenomenon where you have this, you know, species that appear to change very little, and then boom, all of a sudden, huge change with no dots connecting the, the previous and the next species. 
punctuated equilibrium. Let me tell you what punctuated equilibrium is. All it is is a fancy scientific name to explain this phenomenon, to explain something that's happening that's exactly the opposite of what we would expect according to Darwinism. You can't just put a fancy name on something and call it an explanation. You need to explain this phenomenon. Stephen Jay Gould, very famous Harvard evolutionary biologist, atheist of the 20th century. He's, he's one of the two guys, him and Eldridge, that came up with the term punctuated equilibrium. Here's what Gould says. He says, the history of most fossil species includes two features, particularly inconsistent with gradualism. Okay, gradualism is where one species gradually becomes another. So he's like, there's two features that are very inconsistent with what we would expect. First of all, stasis. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they disappear. Morphological change is usually limited and directionless. Two, stasis followed by sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. No, it appears all at once and fully formed. Huh. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and the nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. He goes on, he says, we fancy ourselves as the only true students of life's history. And yet, to preserve our favorite account of evolution by natural selection, we view our data as so bad that we never see the very process we profess to study. A striking admission from a Harvard evolutionary biologist at the head of this field Eldridge, the other guy that helped him come up with this term, here's what he writes. He says, when we do see the introduction of evolutionary novelty, it usually shows up with a bang. Evolution, he says, cannot forever be going on somewhere else. Why don't we see it? Yet that's how the fossil record has struck many a forlorn paleontologist looking to learn something about evolution. Where is the evidence here? haven't found it yet. I mean, I'm, they're, they're certain we will find it, I guess. And in the meantime, we've got a fancy name for it called punctuated equilibrium. But at the end of the day, this is what the leading experts in the field are still saying. And so why are there so many gaps in the fossil record? That's a big problem I have with evolution being the explanation of it all. Finally, this question here, is evolution really sufficient to explain the diversity and complexity of life? I find myself having a hard time believing that one. You know, when you, you look inside the cell, I mean, you saw that, that video we showed at the beginning here tonight. You look inside the cell and you see everything that's going on there inside every one of the cells in your body. Michael Denton, agnostic, biochemist. It's a very important book called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. 
He says, molecular biology has shown that even the tiniest of bacterial cells are exceedingly complex objects. Although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, weighing less than a trillionth of a gram, each is, in effect, a veritable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery. They can't stop using terms like machine here. Terms of, of intelligence, terms of design, factory. It's made up altogether of 100,000 million atoms, far more complicated than any machine built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. All right, I got another short video here from inside the cell. You ready for this? The cell transcribes the genetic designs for each protein from strands of DNA to special molecules of RNA. An enzyme unwinds a segment of DNA, making room for its complementary RNA nucleotides. Both DNA and RNA nucleotides contain a sugar, phosphate, and base. But in RNA, the sugar is ribose, and one of the four bases is replaced by uracil. The exposed bases of the DNA strand serve as a model for the construction of messenger, or mRNA. On other strands, the cell produces transfer, or tRNA, and ribosomal, or rRNA. In their final form, these molecules play a vital role in protein synthesis. Translation begins with the binding of a messenger RNA to a small subunit of a ribosome, the cell's workbench for protein assembly. When properly positioned, the messenger RNA triggers the approach of a tRNA, which carries the first amino acid. The tRNA attaches only if its three nucleotides exactly match the first three coding nucleotides of the mRNA strand. A large ribosomal subunit now joins the group to form a functional ribosome, with two binding sites built from ribosomal proteins and rRNA. Soon, another tRNA arrives, which matches the next three nucleotides on the strand. With the help of the ribosome and some cellular energy, the neighboring amino acids bond together. The first amino acid then separates from its RNA taxi, leaving the ribosome in search of another, identical amino acid. Now the ribosome moves along the mRNA strand. This exposes the next set of nucleotides, which match those of another tRNA. With each amino acid, the protein continues to elongate. As it grows, it folds into the three-dimensional shape so crucial to its function. When the process is complete, the ribosomal fragments separate, free to join again later. With a legion of these molecules in operation, a single cell can produce hundreds of proteins every second. Okay, so that's happening in every cell in your body right now. You know how long, you know how long a strand of DNA is? You do? 
Okay. <laughs> 3.5 billion letters. All folded up inside that cell. I just, I have a hard time imagining that. You know, Darwin, he couldn't see inside the cell. He definitely didn't know about DNA. The thought that that could evolve, I really, I, it just it stretches beyond the bounds of credulity. Denton goes on, he says, molecular biology has also shown us that the basic design of the cell system is essentially the same in all living systems on Earth, from bacteria to mammals. In terms of their basic biochemical design, therefore, no living system can be thought of as being primitive or ancestral with respect to any other system. Nor is there the slightest empirical hint of an evolutionary sequence among all the incredibly diverse cells on Earth. Yeah, we don't have the intermediate fossils along the way. We also don't have this wide range of different types of cells in living organisms. He says there's not the slightest empirical hint of an evolutionary sequence among all the diverse cells on Earth. In the words of Nobel Prize winner Jacques Monod, he says, we have no idea what the structure of a primitive cell might have been. And the reason is because the simplest living system known to us, the bacterial cell, and its overall chemical plan is the same as that of all other living beings. It employs the same genetic code, the same mechanism of translation as do, for example, human cells. Thus, the simplest cells available to us for study have nothing primitive about them. No vestiges of truly primitive structures are discernible. You know, we think about mutations, all right? And when, I think when some of us think mutations, we're thinking like, you know, Wolverine, right? It's like you're born and you're just like, you know, indestructible. And, you know, when you hit puberty, you start realizing that you are. Um, do mutations really further species along like that? Paul Grassi chair of uh, evolutionary biology at Sorbonne University for 30 years, former president of the French Academy of Sciences. He doesn't think so. Here's what he says about mutations. He says, mutations in time, they occur incoherently. They're not complementary to one another. They're not cumulative in successive generations toward a given direction. They modify what pre-exists, but they do so in disorder. As soon as some disorder, even slight, appears in an organized being, sickness, then death follows. No matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. Yeah, they, you know, as far as the survival of the species, they could be helpful in that, but the arrival of a new species, I just don't think so. I don't think so. And so, you know, these questions, these are really what come to mind for me. There's others too that we could talk about, but you know, this notion that evolution can completely account for life and for the diversity and complexity of species. How did the universe begin? Evolution doesn't touch that. How did the universe begin so finely tuned for life? It doesn't touch that either. How did living organisms come from non-living matter? It doesn't say a thing about that. Why so many gaps in the fossil record? You know, it can't explain that either. It says there should be just the opposite, but it's not there. And is it really sufficient to explain the diversity and complexity of life? I just don't think so. I'm going to give it a, a negative on all five of these questions. And so when we think about our original continuum here, a continuum between supernatural intervention and natural processes, 
I think to say it's all one or all the other, I think that's a wrong way of thinking about this. The way I see it, it was probably something like this. I mean, I wasn't there, you weren't there, right? I think we can all agree on that. We can't stick it all in a test tube and make the universe again. This is forensic science. This is more like we come to a, we come to a scene and we have to figure out what happened. And we can, it's still science, and we still can take clues and we can look along, we, we can see, we can observe things, we can test things, but it's trying to reconstruct historical events. And so I think what's, what's most likely, to, in my opinion, is a mixture of both evolution and supernatural intervention. And, you know, the thought that, well, you know, where is God in this whole thing? You know, God is the God of nature. God is the one who set up the laws of nature to work the way that they do. God is the one who came up with reproduction. We're going to see that. Be fruitful and multiply, he says. And so we don't want to kind of make this really firm dichotomy. Really, the way to think, of, in my mind, the way to think of this is God working through natural processes and God working through supernatural acts. And I think some combination of those gives a lot better explanation. I don't know exactly where it is on this continuum here. But I think that gives us a framework for thinking about Genesis 1 and a framework for thinking about how this world came to be the way that it is that I think explains it a lot better than anything that macroevolution can put forward. Let's think about these questions again under this model here. A mixture of evolution and supernatural intervention, what about it? You know, how did the universe begin? That's perfectly answered by the, the biblical concept of a creator God who set things in motion. How did the universe begin so finely tuned for life? Well, that's exactly what you would expect from a creator God, all-powerful, all-knowing. He would know what he was creating, and he would set up the parameters just right for it to turn out the way he wanted it to be. How did living organisms come from non-living matter? Even if, let's say, there was a long time between the initial creation, Genesis 1-1, say, where God created the heavens and the earth, and the part where he starts making living organisms. Maybe there, maybe there was a very long time that elapsed there. But how did the non-living matter, how did we get from there to living matter? Well, that would probably be some interventions on the part of God. Maybe probably quite a few interventions, in my opinion, um, where he's, he's creating along the way. These would, I guess these would be miracles along the way, right? <clears throat> but, you know, once, once you've got a concept for a God that can set the whole thing in motion, how can then you object to creating a species here or making some modifications there? Why are there so many gaps in the, in the fossil record? Well... Evolution has no, doesn't have an explanation for this, but under this model, where you have a period of time elapsing and then perhaps an intervention on behalf of God, that would actually explain perfectly the gaps in that fossil record. All the pieces would fit together. That's exactly what we would expect to find if this is the way that God created. And finally, this question, is evolution really sufficient to explain the diversity and complexity of life? I would say no, but this model here that I'm putting forward that actually, I think, would perfectly explain the diversity and the complexity because, and also the appearance of intelligence, the appearance of design. No one doubts that things appeared designed. And, they, and, and even the most staunch atheists can't stop using terms like machine and factory. And yet, 
the biblical account would provide for this. We'll provide for a God with vast intelligence, more than we can ever comprehend, more than we'll ever get to the bottom of, who could create living organisms, who could create the beauty and complexity of this world, who could even create something as profound as a human being, which we'll get into next week, because what Scripture says is humans are not just physical, but we have a spiritual dimension, a spiritual dimension that could never come from natural processes, but implanted there by God. And what are the implications of that? We need to talk about that as well. But I think this right here, I think this actually explains this quite well. And this is what I believe. And I guess I'm teaching this because I'm hoping you'll adopt this view as well. And I just, I just want to leave you with one more picture here, okay? And we'll wrap it up for tonight. This right here. You guys know what this is? This is a cave drawing on the, in uh, Indonesia, one of the islands there, the island of Jakarta. This is a pig deer. You probably knew that, though. This, they call it a pig deer. <laughs> Serious. This is viewed as the oldest cave drawing that has been discovered to date. This thing is supposedly 30 to 40,000 years old, according to most estimates. You can see there's a pig deer. You can actually see kind of toward the rear of the pig deer a handprint. You see that? That handprint comes from a few thousand... The handprint and the deer are a few thousand years apart, but... You know, this right here, archaeologists, they come upon something like this, and they can instantly seize in on this. They can see this is, this is not just something that occurred through natural, undirected processes. Clearly, humans did this. Clearly, we have intelligent action at work here, sketching out. This is art. This is intention. This is, you see the imprint even of a human hand right there on the wall of the cave. And they look at this and they don't wonder what sort of natural processes might have caused this to occur, unlikely as though they might be. They don't sit there thinking, well, maybe, I, I, I'm certain that someday we'll find natural processes that can account for this. Now they look at this and they say, there were, there were personal beings here. This is a product of intelligence. And they know that that's the case. And so then, when we look into our microscopes, and we look, we look into the cell, and we see a word, 3.5 billion letters long, DNA. We see a system capable of copying that, of replicating that. Why can't we come to that same conclusion that they do when they see the primitive cave drawing? Why can't we see that this is here declaring the glory of God? We need to wake up. We need to see the, the handprint of God right there, right there in all of creation. And that's my plea to you tonight. Yeah, Lord, thanks that... <clears throat> thanks that... You've left your, your handprints all over your creation. Thank you that you're noble, that you're not trying to hide from us, but you're trying to, trying to reveal yourself to us, Lord. We admit that you sought us out first, and we, we're fickle and we turn away, but we thank you that by your grace, you're, you're drawing us to you, and you enable us to come into relationship with you. 
I pray, God, for Christians here that may be struggling in their faith that they would think and study more on some of these things we talked about tonight and that it would grow their faith. And I pray for any non-believers here, Lord, that they would at least take the next step to do some more reading and that maybe some, some here tonight, Lord, maybe it's time for them to take that, that final step toward coming into a relationship with you and inviting Jesus to come into their hearts. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.